Hello, this is Rachel with the Self-Improvement Book Club, and I have guest Dr. Elizabeth Lovick here with us who wrote a book. Um, welcome. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and maybe an interesting fact about you? Yes. Um, I am an art therapist located in Annapolis, Maryland. Um, I work primarily with adolescents and young adults um, struggling with self-esteem issues, body image disorder, um, body image issues, eating disorders, etc. Um, I paint for fun. Um, my background is act started in art, and then I went into art therapy. So I have a little studio space in my house, um, and that's me. <laughs> awesome! So you're creative. I love it. Thank you. Tell me about your book. What What's the title of it? When did you write it? Yes. Okay. So it's called um, a meaning based a meaning based approach to art therapy from the Holocaust to contemporary practices. And the book grew out of my doctoral work in art therapy. Um, so I guess I should have said this isn't about me, but um, I finished my master's in art therapy in two thousand nine, and then I. Um, started a doctoral program in 2015 um, and finished in 2019. Um, and so the book kind of grew out of my dissertation based on the artists and art work created um, during the Holocaust. Okay, great. Um, in general, I guess, just to know your background for reading books, what do you love to read? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I like to read darker books, I guess. I know that sounds bad, but um, like I recently, um, what did I just, I just finished a Marion Keys book, which isn't very dark, but um, it was very enjoyable. Um, I really like Lucy Foley, um, the Gillian Flynn books I liked a lot. Um, I read Verity a few months ago, which um, certainly had. So, so I think I like reading books that have kind of edgy characters. I don't like, um, I don't like reading like fluffy you know, <laughs> I like some edge to the characters. Yes, I read Verity and I loved it. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I read it on a plane. I was like, oh my God, am I allowed to read this in public? <laughs> yes, um, no judgment for liking dark books here. <laughs> That's okay. So you said that in 2006, you became aware of the extensive range of Holocaust artwork. Can you tell me more about that discovery? Yeah, of course. Um, so in 2006, I was working at Duke University's Hillel um, and I had an opportunity to lead a student group to Prague. Um, and I had already been accepted into an art therapy master's program that I was supposed to be starting in March. So I had this concept of art therapy, um, you know, had committed to um, an education in it, um, but hadn't started any classes yet. And so in November, I went to Prague um, and Prague has a huge, um, a huge amount of Jewish history and Jewish culture, some of it even preserved from World War II. Um, and so we had an opportunity to go to the Theresen Ghetto, which is now the Theresen Memorial. It's located about 60 kilometers northwest of Prague. Um, and it was used as both a ghetto and a concentration camp. Um, but ultimately, it was considered a model ghetto. Um, so in 1943, actually, um, the Nazis created like shops in Theresen's, Theresen's main square. Um, 
along with a post office, a bank, a coffee house, et cetera, to kind of give this illusion of a town so that when Red Cross representatives came to investigate Theresen, um, you know, they could be fooled. Um, but ultimately it was a ghetto. Individuals were, you know, forced to live there. They were in really poor conditions. Um, and those who didn't follow the ghetto rules were sent to the small fortress, which was more of a concentration camp um, where they were you know, often tortured or tasked with manual labor or starved. Um, so the the environment of um, Theresen was quite paradoxical because um, it was used as a model deck, model ghetto. Um, restrictions regarding cultural activities were pretty inconsistent. So sometimes, um, you know, prisoners, um, I don't know if that's the best word, but um, those kind of held captive in, in Theresen were allowed to do some cultural activities like, um, you know, visual arts and theater because it, you know, supported the guys. Um, however, other days, you know, that was strictly prohibited. So the Theresen, the Theresen Memorial now has a ton of artwork that was created in Theresen, both um, known and clandestinely. And so I learned about this one artist, Friedel Dicker Brandeis, who had created artwork with the children in Theresen. She was actually a um, well-known artist in the Bauhaus movement. Um, but when she got her transport notice to be sent to Theresen, she packed art supplies in order with the intention of supporting the kids in the ghetto. Um, and she was actually sent originally um, assigned to the design department and then requested to be with the children instead. So I thought that was fascinating. Um, and initially my interest in art therapy was working with children. So I just thought, I just couldn't believe seeing all this artwork um, that was created by these kids in you know such a devastating environment. Um, and then this one woman had, you know, spent the last few months of her life um, creating art with them and trying to better their experience. Um, I also learned about a lot of other artists who had created um, in the both design department and outside of that in Theresen. Um, there was a group of artists who um, were tasked with creating Nazi propaganda. They were given um, different assignments. They had to create signs for Theresen. They had to, um, in some cases, like create counterfeits of um, famous paintings. Um, but then in their spare time, they would create their own artwork showing what was actually going on in the ghetto. Um, so I thought this was so fascinating and I was, I decided I wanted to start, um, I wanted to study more of it. Like there seemed to be this very obvious connection between this field that I was about to go into art therapy and um, the idea that people were creating artwork um, in the midst of a genocide. So um, I wrote my master's thesis. I centered my master's thesis on Friedel Dicker Brandeis, who's a pretty well-known character in the art therapy world, um, although she did perish in Auschwitz, um, where she was sent after Theresen. Um, but as I was researching her and the artists of Theresen, I learned about a lot of other artists. And then I learned, I discovered that there was actually um, art being created at in camps and ghettos and in, um, in places of hiding across Europe. And I just thought that was fascinating. So then when I um, decided to pursue a doctorate in art therapy, I um, wanted to focus on the art of the Holocaust as a whole and kind of look at it as a phenomenon. Wow, yes. So I know reading your book, um, you believe there's a connection between art therapy or art and some spiritual growth in the face of adversity. Did you kind of first see this connection here? Yeah, I mean, so I guess I had seen it, you know, I that kind of made 
sense and the concept of art therapy. And I knew, you know, from my own experience that just art making um, could feel good, could um, make a situation more comfortable, could make someone feel good about themselves. Um, and so, yeah, it was very clear that these individuals were, um, were kind of, you know, so much of, um, when we think about, sorry, when we think about individuals in captivity, you know, you think about starvation and poor conditions and hard labor, but one of the key um, elements of torture that the Nazis, um, you know, did to their, to their captives was um, dehumanize them. And I think the arts, creating art was such a way to like um, reassert that sense of humanity that was being stripped away. So even though there wasn't, um, you know, there wasn't necessarily an opportunity for, sometimes people use the term spiritual resistance that like the art of the Holocaust kind of constitutes spiritual resistance. And then there's some scholars who challenge that suggesting that like, well, resistance suggests that like the, the um, so-called underdog, you know, has a chance and that that doesn't really count. Um, so I think it was really more about resisting a resistance against the, um, the systematic dehumanization. You know, even though these individuals knew that they had no control whether they lived or died, um, they could control how they wanted to spend, you know, the rest of their their life in captivity. Yeah, that that is that is true. And what a powerful way to do to, to kind of reclaim that for themselves through art. Yeah, it's really and it, and then you know if you think about it as um, the ultimate plan was annihilation, art is um, you know a permanent piece. So even though, even if the individual artist didn't survive or their whole family didn't survive, um, this piece of art might have survived. Yeah. And art is so moving, like it touches people. So that makes sense. Wow. Exactly. <laughs> um, so when I kind of read through parts of your books, you broke it up into three parts. What was the process like for you to like organize this book, start writing it, like fascinated with that? Yeah. So, um, I, okay, so it's based on how I structured my dissertation. Um, I had an opportunity in my dissertation to do, um, for my dissertation to do like an article style where in lieu of a traditional five chapter dissertation, you do um, uh, three, you know, potential journal articles. Um, and my advisor had suggested that I kind of break it up into um, theory, research and practice which is uh, the doctoral program that I went to at Mount Mary University was actually really focused on practice-based, um, practitioner-based research. So there was a lot of, you know, I, I was working as a clinician. I wasn't necessarily interested in like research or academia, um, but I really liked the idea of focusing of um, research coming from practitioners who could then, you know, rather than research being done in a silo, research could be done um, by individuals who were working with, you know, with these tough populations and then could apply that research directly to um, their clinical practice. So um, it made sense to kind of go about it that way. Um, and I guess the process, the the structure really um, relates to my own process in kind of understanding this artwork, because first, you know, I saw it and I had this idea that there was art from the Holocaust existed. I saw a connection to art therapy. So in the first section, I'm kind of, um, developing that relationship and showing how theories of art therapy um, relate to what we see in in um, the art of the Holocaust. And also um, in chapters two and three, I really dive into like 
the um, the types of art that was created and how it was created and how it was hidden and what the artists were hoping to gain um, or how they were hoping to benefit from creating. Um, and then the second part is a bit unconventional. It's really focused on my research um, journey, I guess. And so my experience of like seeing more of this artwork, um, I had seen some of it obviously when I was in Prague, but then I wanted to see more. Um, I live not that far from DC, so it's certainly easy to access the US Holocaust Museum. Um, but there were a few other museums and galleries um, in Israel that I wanted to go to. And in um, there was an exhibit by in um, Berlin in, let's see, early 2016, I believe, um, titled Art from the Holocaust. And it was an exhibit of 100 works from the Yad Vashem collection. So Yad Vashem is the World Holocaust Museum in Israel. And they host about 10,000 works of art created um, by victims in captivity. Um, so there was an exhibit in Berlin of that, um, of 100 of those works. So it was really interesting to go see them and like be in Germany and just think about like, you, you know, walking by um, the Brandenburg Gate and, you know, all these other famous sites and kind of thinking about like, what would it have been like to be here, you know, 70 years prior and, and noticing just how um, the ease I felt like walking around, even walking around alone at some times um, and not worrying and just kind of realizing how, um, you know, the, the paradox of like not being able to do that. Um, but um, so yeah, so the, I apologize for kind of going on a tangent there, but the, um, so the second part is really all about my research um, process. So, you know, taking opportunities to see more of this artwork um, and then actually interviewing um, participants. So finding individuals who were still living, who had created artwork, um, you know, while in captivity, um, getting their permission. And then in some cases meeting with them in person, other times just meeting with them over Zoom. Um, and so I had met with a bunch of, let's see, I had met with five individuals in 2017. And then um, when, I started working on the book at the end of 2020. Um, I met with a few others and that was via Zoom because of the pandemic, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, so I struck, I talk about, you know, my um, my experience just seeing some of this artwork and what, um, you know, why it interests me. Um, and then the research method that I chose, which is a phenomenological inquiry um, because I was looking at the body of artwork as a phenomenon and then, um, in you know interviewing the artists in chapter six, chapter six is all about um you know each artist's story. Wow. So that must have been really neat to interview the artist. It was so neat. Um you know some of them are very some of them are very rehearsed. It was interesting because you know the people that I found were people who have given a lot of talks, who had given, you know, they're they were easy to access. Um so some people had kind of a very like rote way of being interviewed you know they had like set top set just you know things that they talked about or set um and it was like it was very rehearsed in a way and, like, um, you, right yeah exactly exactly because <laughs> you know a lot of them had like you know spoken many times and so I don't think anyone had ever like I guess I was really focused solely on their art process not necessarily like 
how, you know, how bad was it? How traumatic was it? How, but just like, tell me about creating artwork in this experience. Um, so it was really, it was interesting to just get to hear about that. Um, and the, the phenomenological process encourages you to bracket out any like pre-existing information, um, which is kind of impossible because <laughs> I had to do a literature review, um, you know, and I had seen all this artwork and I was familiar with the context in which it was made. So um, I tried to just really focus on, you know, my experience with the individual, um, no, you know, any like, um, you know, shifts in, um, shifts in how they spoke, any um, pauses or, you know, lingering on anything, any um, verbiage. One example, um, one of the individuals who I interviewed, Yehuda Bekan, who um, I got to meet with him in Jerusalem in person, which was lovely. And he was just such a, um, like soft, gentle man. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And he described his artwork. Um, he talked about artwork that he cre had created in Auschwitz. He was only like, 15. And um, he said that it perished. And that was kind of interesting because the term perished is often reserved for individuals who, who died, um, you know, who were murdered. And so the idea that his artwork perished suggested that it, um, you know, that it, it was more meaningful than just this, you know, object that it, um, it had um, some other, you know, purpose for him that it maybe represented a person or a feeling um, that, you know, he couldn't access. So um, I tried to pay attention to that stuff. And then um, I used the Georgie method of, um, of um, a phenomenological um, psychological structure, which is like really <laughs> sounds very wordy, but it's really just breaking it down and kind of understanding the phenomena that um, of creating artwork in the Holocaust. Okay. So I know you also kind of, uh, like integrated logotherapy into your yeah. <laughs> that part was super interesting to me because um you know obviously that is such a um great framework for for therapy so tell me more about that part of your book yeah so the third section is all about um practice so how I relate this body of artwork and my research to my clinical practice um so when I was working on my master's thesis back in 2000 eight, I guess, 2008, 2009, my advisor suggested that I read Man's Search for Meaning. Um, just, she said that some of, you know, the way I'm describing this artwork and my interest it, and my interest in it um, kind of aligned with some of Viktor Frankl's words. Um, and so it definitely did. <laughs> um, and I loved. Very I, much so, yes. <laughs> right? And I was just so fascinated by the idea that um, individuals could find meaning in such an adverse experience um, and that even um, again, like these individuals knew that they had no control over their, whether they lived or died, but they could control how they, how they lived when they were alive. Um, and there was this beautiful quote, um, that Victor Frankl, he talked in Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about, um, you know, one morning they were, um, he was in Auschwitz and he and his comrades, I think he used the word comrades quite frequently, um, were like pulled out you know, before dawn and were forced to like stand for this grueling roll call and the weather was unpleasant and they were malnourished and sick and everything. Um, and then as they stood there, like the sun started to rise and they all just looked up and he said, um, we all realized how beautiful the world could be. Mm -hmm. And I love how, um, you know, even in the most horrific of, horrific of settings, um, 
you know, he noted that individuals still had the capacity to find beauty, to find hope, to find something outside of this um, disgusting environment that they were, you know, seeped in. So I felt that really related the idea of like, um, yeah, finding some sort of beauty. Yeah. It's like overcoming your circumstances. And that was probably yeah. the worst example of horrible circumstances. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so then when I started my doctoral program, I was really focused on learning more about existential theory. Um, and my advisor, Bruce Moon has done a lot of work with, um, art therapy and existentialism. So I kind of leaned more into that, um, and got and read more of Victor Frankl's work. And I, um, yeah, just got more invested in logotherapy. Um, and I just thought it, it made so much sense for the way that I practice art therapy. And it made so much sense um, in relation to the art of the Holocaust. So um, there's this idea in logotherapy, Victor Frankl sets up the concept of a tridimensional ontology, where um, basically he describes humans as having, you know, three um, dimensions. You have your spiritual, your, sorry, your um, physical dimension, which all you know, animals have, it's your physical space. Um, you have your, um, I forget how he, the word he uses doesn't quite make sense given what, you know, our, like the therapeutic language that we use, but your um, emotional being or your, um, you know, your cognitive dimension. So the part of you that like um, thinks and understands and takes information in and processes um, what's around them. So he describes all animals as having that all animals have, you know, some a cognitive, cognitive functioning, all animals have um, a, a physical presence. But what's unique about humans is that we have what he described as the spiritual dimension. And the word spirit really isn't um, intended to relate to religion, religion, but more about an individual's, like, their individual spark, their soul, their sense of humanity. Um, and he argues that the spiritual dimension is the part of the human that can thrive despite, um, you know, deficits in both the um, physical and cognitive dimension. So I thought that was really interesting too. That, and I thought that this artwork really exemplified it. That even though these people were, you know, were brutalized and tortured and um, had no concept of like what their future held um, and, you know, were starving and had been torn away from their families, they still had, um, their spiritual dimension could still thrive. And I think creating artwork in that environment allowed them to bolster their spiritual dimension. And I think that's so important for, um, you know, the clients that we see in therapy who just feel so stuck, who feel so lost. Um, and I think, you know, creating artwork with them, at least this is the way I practice, um, my goal is to really help them bolster their sense of self, their sense of being, their sense of autonomy, like all these functions of the spiritual dimension. Yeah. And well, that could definitely translate to anyone that's struggling. Like you said, the physical, like if you're going through cancer treatments exactly. or, you know, anything that you may go through, maybe it's not as bad as the Holocaust, but we all kind of get into our own uh, stuff, right. place, like you said, right? Exactly. And all experiences, all experiences are relative, right? So like someone's negative experience of maybe, you know, going through cancer treatment or going through a divorce or, you know, something that's seemingly mundane in comparison to a genocide, um, you know, it's relative. So it's there, it's 
yeah, their, time their worst time or yeah. their really hard time or their time they kind of go through our time. So they could use this, um, you know, art therapy or something else to bolster that kind of meaning like that you described in your book, correct? Exactly. Exactly. To be able to find that meaning, um, you know, even if they're, if they're feeling helpless, if they're feeling um, lost or stuck or, you know, fearful, it, um, maybe creating artwork will help them find um, or reclaim, you know, their sense of purpose despite all of that. Yeah. Is there anything like if someone reads your book that you would hope they would take away from it or like your hope for the book in general? Yeah. So uh, I guess it's kind of twofold. I mean, I want, I certainly want to honor the artists who had created their, their stories were just so incredible. Um, this one, one artist, Alfred Cantor, not Alfred Cantor. I'm sorry. He was fascinating too. I did not get an opportunity to interview him, um, but I quote him a lot. So his, he's at the tip. Um, he's always on my mind. I actually had an opportunity to interview neighbors of his um, who knew him in like the eighties and nineties, um, you know, in his, his post-war life. And that was really fascinating. Um, but um, Frederick Terna, I was able to interview in person and he was so lovely. Um, he in invited me into his home. He like served breakfast for us. He showed me his studio. Um, we spent about three hours together and it was just, it was just so amazing to get to know this whole person. Um, so I think so often he actually passed away recently. Um, I mean, he lived such a long full life and he was 98 when he passed away is, um, so it's pretty, pretty incredible. Um, but I think so often these individuals, you know, are just viewed as victims and people want to, you know, learn about like the worst part of their history or about, you know, how skeletal they were when they were, um, released or, you know, they want to see the tattoos on their arms or whatever. I feel like there's, there's all this, um, it's difficult to focus on the individual, you know, when you think about something as mass as the Holocaust, it's difficult to understand like the, the individuals who suffered. And I think that's important to apply um, to genocides and, you know, political um, strife around the world in contemporary times. You know, we think about like the refugee crisis, um, well, Syria's refugee crisis or, um, you know, the U.S.-Mexican border or even Ukrainian refugees. And it's so easy, it's so easy to get lost in the magnitude um, that you don't think about the individuals and the individual lives. Um, so I think I, I'd like for um, my readers to recognize, you know, the the humanity that was that um, prevailed despite the circumstances. Um, I also think that this body of artwork just really supports a lot of art therapy theory. You know, in um, right now in the US healthcare system, there's so much focus on evidence-based practices, right? And so mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, it's so great when you can, you know, I'll, I was looking at these different art therapy theories or hearing different um, colleagues speak. And I was like, well, that kind of relates to the art of the Holocaust too. Um, so I think it just lends credence to the way art therapists practice and the idea of using art in conjunction with therapy. Um, using art as a form of therapy. Um, so I, I hope that, um, you know, this work maybe empowers art therapists who, you know, tend to like hedge what they're doing, um, 
hopefully it empowers them to feel um, stronger in their convictions that art therapy is beneficial. Um, and I'd like it, um, you know, other mental health professionals and um, potential consumers, I guess, to recognize the benefits of creating artwork. Great. Yeah. And I, I watched you light up when you talked about the artists. <laughs> I, I think you're really passionate about it. And it sounds like it was an excellent experience. And I so love, yeah. <laughs> like I could see how wonderful it was. Thank um, you. But also I love this message of like hope or humanity in your book, like kind of showing that side of it versus maybe the adversity, like what, what they gained from it. Right. Yeah. I, I think so often, um, you know, the focus in the Holocaust. And then also when you think about mental health care, there's so much focus on pathology, right? Um, oh yeah. <laughs> so when you're so focused on pathology, you're missing out on everything outside of that. And like, you know, I see this a lot in my clients um, who struggle with eating disorders, their treatment is just so consuming. And part of it is um, due to the, you know, medical struggles that they, you know, deal with, have to contend with also. So it's not something that just affects um, their psychological state, but certainly there's a lot of medical component yeah. um, co um, complications as well. You know, so I understand my treatment can be so consuming, but it you know, sometimes individuals lose who they are. And I think that they need to know who they are in order to fight against their pathology. Um, so when clinicians are so focused on, you know, everything that's wrong with you, everything that you shouldn't be doing, um, I mean, obviously that's important, but I think it's critical to have a more holistic view in order to like bolster the individuals, like I said before, bolster the individual's spiritual dimension, give them, um, help them find the reason that they are willing to go through treatment, that they are willing to go through recovery um, and help them, you know, find the, their inner resources that make them who they am, who they are. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I'm going to use it. But well, I agree. Like when, in my own practice, I think focusing on, on that stuff is really helpful, right? Like we don't want to keep kind of saying what's wrong with you, but like, what, yeah. yeah. What are your strengths? What are your inner hopes? Like, how do we connect with, you know, who you that. are? Yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. Um, so I, you wrote this book. It sounds like a huge <laughs> book, right? are you going to publish any more in the future? Are there any books that will come out in the future? Um, not right now. This was a lot of work. Um, I did. Um, I mean, I wrote, I have, I published a journal article on my research process. Um, and then I co-wrote, um, a chapter in an undergraduate textbook on art therapy on humanistic art therapy. Um, and then I'm contributing a chapter to, um, I'm not sure if this is under contract yet, but, um, there is a Wiley handbook of art therapy. Oh. And, um, that is, they're updating that. I think the most recent edition was 2016. And so one of the editors asked me if I would do um, contribute a chapter on existentialism and logotherapy and art therapy. So um, I guess that's the next project, but the book was a lot. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to just kind of talking about that for a while and um, letting it, you know, chilling out. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. And that still sounds like gives exciting things coming up. Um, so what's next on your own personal reading list oh. here? Um, yes. So there's a book I just started reading. Is it Ordinary Humans? Ordinary People? Is oh, that... yeah. Ordinary People. Yes. Ordinary People. Yeah. So my um, office mate lent it to me. I'm excited to, I read like the first chapter and it was good. 
it was enjoyable. And then, um, what else do I want to read? Um, people keep talking about lessons in chemistry. So Ooh, that's on my list too. <laughs> yeah, so I'm very excited to read that. And then hidden, oh my goodness, it's not hidden. It might be called hidden pictures. Mm -hmm. Um, someone told me about that. Hidden pictures. I'd have to check my Goodreads because I, <laughs> I put it in hidden objects. I think it's more hidden about objects. It. That sounds right. Okay, that's like a psychological thriller. Probably more in the dark category. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. <laughs> well, I read a lot. I read a lot. Oh. I <laughs> so I can definitely talk books. But so in the description, I'm going to link for the listeners um, where we where you can find your book. Is is there something you would like them to know where they they can find your book if they want to get it? Um, they can find it on um, Amazon. You can find it on the Rutledge website, um, Google Books, Barnes and Noble, anything like that. Um, yeah. And I appreciate, I apologize for, um, you know, it's, it was so interesting writing it. Like it was so, um, I was so methodical and I look at it now and it doesn't, it looks, doesn't look that big. <laughs> it's not large, but it's so dense. And so sometimes, um, you know, talking about it can be difficult because I, one thought leads to another sure. and, um, it's difficult to like condense everything to, um, you know, to an interview. So I apologize for being a bit tangential. Um, I guess it is something that I feel really passionate about. Um, and yeah, when some of the questions you ask and I look back, I'm like, oh, right. That, <laughs> and that was something that I talked about. And, uh, I can say it reads beautifully and it's Thank a, you so much. Lovely appreciate that. a lovely book that everyone should pick up and read. I think it's fascinating. Um, again, you, you do seem passionate about it. Again, I could tell you were lighting up about the book so that, you know, when you're passionate about it and you put so much into it, that's a wonderful thing. Thank you so much. So thank you so much for being here. And again, everyone in the description, um, we can find where the book is and more about the author. So Thanks for listening and we'll see you at next.